This is the Otaku Nate Show, Episode 7, Lost Universe. So long, and thanks for the coconut crab. What is up, anime fans? Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show, the anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me this week is my boy Race. Hello there. I'm back once again. And this week we are going to be talking about Lost Universe, a show that was released in 1998 by ENG Films. More on that release date later. The show is notable because it is from the creator of The Slayers, Hajime Kanzaka, and a little bit of a spoiler, but this show is actually tied in to The Slayers. Sort of, from what I understand. The director of this was Takashi Watanabe, and boy oh boy does this guy have a mixed resume, because... He's directed things that have gotten acclaim. Namely, he was a director for a majority of the Slayers, save for a few specials here and there. And he also directed a majority of Shakugan no Shana. Both shows have gotten great praise. He also was the director for Rave Master, which is fondly remembered by fans my age, and was also the director of Boogie Pop Phantom. On the other hand, his other stuff ranges from either average to utter crap, because he's directed things like Demon King Daimo, Dai Shogun Great Revolution, which I've seen footage of, and oh, that's a series for the show later on, uh, the terrible adaptation of Freezing, a manga that I generally enjoy, but got a terrible adaptation. Uh, he also directed Arya the Scarlet Ammo, and the biggest black mark on his resume, Ikitosin. That's quite a mixed bag there. I mean, we all love Slayers, but seriously, looking up this guy's work, it's it's amazing. And uh, I believe at the same time, wasn't he also working on Slayers, directing Slayers and directing uh, Lost Universe at the same time, I believe? No, no, he wasn't. Thankfully not, because it just seems so stretched thin. When we cross that bridge, we'll we'll really see that Watanabe seems like he was stretched thin at this time with the direction of this show. And we'll get into that in a little bit, right? Actually, I'm looking now. He did direct two of the Slayers movies in 1998. He did direct the Slayers movie, but that's about the only other thing. And I think directing a movie is kind of a less stressful job than directing a TV series. But again, we'll talk about that. The show had three writers, the first of which being series creator Hajime Kanzanka. The second being Mayori Sekijima, who also wrote Saber Marionette J, Zegapain, Feebrain, and the Initial D movie trilogy, and Yasunori Yamada, who was a partial writer for the Slayers anime, along with writing Little Snow Fairy Sugar, and was director for Comic Party Revolution. So you've got some staff that worked on both the Slayers and this show, so you'd think that with that crossover, that 
Lost Universe would be on the level of the Slayers, but before we get to the review proper, I want to know, Race, where did you first hear about Lost Universe? Well, I've been a big fan of anime since the 90s. I read about it in one of the early, about the year 2000, Right Stuff catalog. And that's where I got a tape for Christmas, the first tape. And that tape is long gone, so I've had it replaced. Um, But that was actually, believe it or not, tying into Boogie Pop Phantom. That was uh, the 2000 Right Stuff catalog uh, featured Boogie Pop Phantom on it. (laughs) And so I never really watched the show until I saw it on Univision or Telemundo. Wow! Yeah, yeah, it was in Spanish. There's actually a Spanish dub of Lost Universe. And it was kind of one of those, believe it or not, lost shows for me because I remember watching it a little bit on Saturday mornings and then forgetting about it. And then years later, I found it just like those darn lost ships in the show. So yeah, that's where I heard about it. And, you know, people say it's shitty slayers in space, which it pretty much is. And, uh... You know, talking about how it's connected with the Slayers, they really did try to loosely connect it with the Slayers in an interesting way. The art style is very similar in the show, but that's why I think I've always tried to like it. And I think just my recent watch through just kind of cemented that it's like, Nate, you need to hear about this show. And so that's why we're here doing this podcast. Well, I had known about Lost Universe even before I did this review because I remember being a fan of the Slayers, even though I only partially watched the first series, I will freely admit to that. But I always liked the artwork, and I even bought one of the novels when Tokyo Pop was releasing them during the bubble period for anime and manga. I remember enjoying what I liked of the Slayers and being entertained by it, and so... When I saw that the creator, Hajime Kanzaka, had a sci-fi series, I'm like, cool, that must be pretty good. And from the reviews I read at the time, I heard it was actually somewhat decent. And then it sort of went on and off of my radar for several years, though I do know Lost Universe for one thing, which we'll get to when we talk about the animation. So when I was first doing the show and I was asking you what things we should watch, you suggested that we check out Lost Universe. And I thought, oh... Okay, yeah, again, a sci-fi series by the creator of The Slayers. How bad could this be? I mean, it has to be good because The Slayers is entertaining and everybody likes and remembers The Slayers, so this should be a riot, right? Oh, how wrong I was. I remember telling you, Nate, you're just not going to like it. And then you're just like, let me judge for myself. And now here you are with a stomach full of this wonderful show, wondering what went wrong. (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, I will freely admit I had a hard time paying attention while watching Lost Universe. Maybe it's just my crappy attention span or the fact that because of my job or just because of my habits or routines, I've been falling asleep earlier and earlier. Uh, Don't worry, I do get a good night's sleep. I don't suffer from insomnia. But it's a case of where I just find myself getting tired while watching this. Because it was just such a nothing show. And by the end of it, I was just happy that I was done with it. Because this wasn't a bad anime where I was actively getting angry at it. It was just an anime where I just shrugged and went... Okay, it's over now. On to the next thing. But I think we should get into the review proper. And my initial impression was, holy crap, the animation in this is sloppy. 
Very much so. The CGI is, is the worst offender. It's very dated. The main ship itself, that, that CGI is, is just... It goes from passable to awful. And then a lot of the key animation, too, is just, it's sloppy. And you would think it works for Slayers because Slayers is a good parody. It doesn't work for Lost Universe because it's a bad parody. I didn't have a problem with the CGI. In fact, I honestly think the CGI was good for when it was made. But the problem I had was on the technical things because this isn't on the level of something like Twinkle Nora Rock Me where the animation is two seconds per frame. This is more along the lines of just sloppy animation on par with what you'd get from an early 90s uh, Deke cartoon. A lot of the in-between stuff is incredibly jarring. There are obvious shots where they just zoomed in on the cells to hide the fact that maybe some details were unfinished. Some of the in-between shots, the characters look off-model. Other shots have this weird yellow tint to them, as if to denote that there was a transfer error. Some of the shots are randomly in that ugly early digital animation aesthetic. It's not the ugliest show ever, but from a technical standpoint, everything is just a mess. Traveling back, when I watched the show, I felt just like you every time I've ever watched the show. Initially, the first time that I watched the show back in the day, I was like, okay, I can handle it. And, you know, it, it was anime. There wasn't really too much out there that I had access to, in, you know, at the time. And going back and watching it the second and third time, it's it's a chore. It was a chore. And that is because, yeah, the animation is, it just goes from one extreme to another. Sometimes it looks pretty good and other times it looks very bad. But the stories are the biggest part that I think keeps the attention span bad. Like if you have a bad attention span, those stories are honestly bad offenders as well. The only real thing I could pay attention to was just how bad a lot of the in-between or key animation shots were. Because the characters had trouble staying on model from shot to shot. But this is in, like, the early parts of the show. They do iron it out in the later parts. But if you're one of those people who can't watch anime because it looks old, if you are one of those people, I say shame on you. But this is just only gonna vindicate those people who refuse to watch cell-animated anime because of how it looks. Because Lost Universe isn't the ugliest looking show, but the animation is just a mess. And that sort of brings me to the only thing people know Lost Universe for. And that is the Coconut Crab episode. Are you aware of what happened, Race? You know what? Fill me in because I the coconut crab is one of those things that I barely remember because, like I said, with my attention span with this show, I re one of my favorite episodes is the chicken cult oh, episode. Yes. <laughs> and, I mean, there's a lot of stupid things. Also, the coconut crab is, is pretty famous, but, yeah, fill us all in on that. Before we uh, talk about another episode, which is really stupid and a terrible filler episode, the bathroom episode. All right. The Coconut Crab episode is nothing special. It's a beach episode four episodes into the series. I'm sorry, but I kind of hate anime that do a beach episode before the halfway point. Some can get away with it like Oron Host Club and Gurren Lagann, but that's because those shows are, you know, good. The Coconut Crab episode is one of the most technically disastrous episodes in anime history because Lost Universe, at least in the early episodes, was a very troubled production. 
all the studios that were working on it were swamped with anime because after Evangelion came out and set the world on fire for good and for ill, the anime industry was injected with a ton of new money and studios were spending like crazy to get more content out in the hopes that something would be on the level of Evangelion. And so studios had more and more work to do and because of this Lost Universe the studios that were working on Lost Universe couldn't really keep up with production demands, so they had to farm out the animation to studios in Korea. The studio that they farmed it out to was Sanho Studio. And usually whenever you farm out animation, you always send the materials, like the storyboards, the script, etc. All Sanho Studio received was just the basic outlines of the characters, and so... And so when the episode first aired and was released on home video, the animation, it looks like a really bad Flash cartoon from the early 2000s. It looks like somebody's first anime. I do not exaggerate when I say I've seen some low-budget OAVs that look better than this. Like, there's no real proper shading, the character movement is incredibly jerky, it's just plain awful, and it got so bad that when it was released on Laserdisc, they actually went back and animated the episode properly. And in every subsequent release of Lost Universe, that episode has been released with its proper animation. You won't find that badly animated part of the episode on any other home video release unless it's the original VHS. Well, now it's something I have to look for. Wow, thanks for the challenge. I remember the Coconut Crab episode that, you know, you were speaking of. I was like, you know, wait a second. No, it can't be. But then again, I have a home video release that was done by ADV Films, and I'm sure it's the fixed up version. It, it is the patched up version. Yeah. Well, it, fixed up as this show can be. <laughs> but yeah, thinking about like, you know, a beach episode, four episodes in, uh, the chicken cult with what it was like pigs and chickens. You're jumping ahead, man. Oh, sorry. That episode effectively coined a term for any anime with an episode that features off model or incomplete animation. That sort of episode is called a Yashigani, which is the Japanese word for coconut crab. And so, any anime that features off-model in-betweens or missing in-betweens is called a Yashigani. And there have been several since then, perhaps the most infamous being Musashi Gundo. I remember reading about this in the Otaku Encyclopedia, which I have right in front of me. It's a kind of a fun little coffee table book by Patrick Galbraith. He referred to this in the anime bubble segment section of the encyclopedia. Here's the excerpt. After Evangelion came the legendary Yashigami incident in 1998, so-called because episode 4 of Lost Universe called Yashigani Hofuru was aired with hardly any in-between frames and the characters basically jerked around on screen. For a time, any bad anime was called a Yashigani. The other example they cite is, of course, Gundress, where there was a whole scene animated where they didn't even paint the mechs. That, and that was released in theaters. That's, uh, that's punishable by death. Another example to show just how troubled the production was on Lost Universe, the opening animation wasn't even finished when it first came out. 
Because if you watch the opening from, say, episode 1 and then jump to the one from episode 13, you will notice that it is different. And the opening animation, at least in the early episodes, will have two inserts of the characters holding up banners saying, A work in progress and under construction. Effectively admitting, Sorry, we ran out of time to properly animate this opening. We <laughs> hope that you pardon our dust. <laughs> Well, I think that in the uh, American release, the opening is completely different. I think it's the later opening is what they used. A actually, I watched this series on Right Stuff, and they used that early opening in the early episodes. Huh. Okay, well, my ADV release is different then, actually. It has to be. Well, that's actually cool that uh, it's now handled by Nozomi, isn't it? It is, yes. Okay. they. It was one of several ADV licenses that they salvaged. Well, I mean, ADV is pretty much the shovelware of uh, anime back during the anime bubble. You know, I take a look at my VHS collection, and Lost Universe is just one of the many offenders that ADV picked up at one point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there was a lot of shovelware that was squeezed out during that anime bubble period, and some of it was actually pretty good. It's just not a lot of people watched it, but oh, the anime bubble, that is a subject for another show. Absolutely, and I was there for it. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> oh, man. It's really sad about that opening, because the opening and ending for this show are great. Oh, the, the songs are great, too. Infinity, the opening, I routinely listen to that whenever I go jogging. It's an embodiment of why I love the 90s as a decade for anime opening. Also, the opening animation, by the time you get to episode 13, or at least in my release, how I've always had it, that show pumps you up. Like, just the animation pumps you up. Like, the sword breaker looks good, and mm -hmm. the characters look good. There's a lot of action going on. You get a gist for the show. It's very energetic and, and exciting, and it makes you want to watch the show. And then you get to the actual show itself. The ending song's really catchy, too. Absolutely. I love that little 90s uh, dance song with that funky bass line. That do 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 I also love the pun of many, 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 and many, many. It's the 90s. It's Megumi Hayashibara singing songs you can't go wrong. Even if Infinity is basically just a knockoff of Give a Reason from Slayer's Next. Let me play the two side by side just to show you what I mean. All right, sounds like a winner. Speaking of Megumi Hayashibara, holy crap, the voice cast on this, man. It's that. You want to talk about overlap on the Slayers and Lost Universe side, a lot of the people who did voices for the Slayers are in this show. Our lead character, Kane, is voiced by Soichiro Hoshi. Fans may know him best as Kyo from Fruits Basket. Uh, Goro Akechi from Persona 5. He was Son Goku in Sayuki, and he was also the Japanese voice of... 
Kira Yamato. Jesus Yamato. <laughs> yeah. Jesus was... indeed. Oh, God. Oh, Masaru Daimon and Digimon Savers, too. I... He also uh, was in uh, part of the Digimon franchise. Millie is voiced by Tomiko Ishimura. She was Fatora in El Hazard, Rumia in Magical Girl Pretty Sammy, but her Slayer's role was Martina Zoana Mel Navratilova in Slayer's Next. And our holographic waifu, Kanal, is voiced by the aforementioned Megumi Hayashibara. And it was the 90s, Megumi Hayashibara was in everything. Yeah, she was a hot ticket in the 90s. Faye Valentine, Pen Pen and Evangelion, Faye Valentine, Rei Ayanami, and she was also the voice of Pen Pen. And the first place I knew her from, she was Lena Inverse in The Slayers. Rail is voiced by Higaru Midorikawa, who was Zelgadis from The Slayers. And his assistant, Nina, was voiced by Masami Suzuki, who was Amelia. And our central villain, the Spreader of Darkness, is voiced by Yasunori Matsumoto Gori Gabriov. So there's a lot of Slayers crossover in here. I'm guessing Hajime Kanzaka wanted his cast to be consistent between shows, but huh, a lot of good that did this show. You know, sometimes you can always have a stacked bill, and that bill won't always turn out the best, especially with the uh, with the Japanese voice acting. On the English side, the voice acting is not stacked because it's been it was taken care of uh, by Monster Island you were telling me and it's like oh yeah I saw the credits for the English cast and the English cast has a lot of uh, interesting people in it and since you're the uh, voice acting guy I'll take over from here okay what race said about the Japanese side is what I say about English dubs a good dub does not a good show make because a show can have an amazing English dub and still be terrible but thankfully, we don't have to worry about that here because the English dub is not good. Like, at all. This was done by Monster Island Studios, as Race mentioned. And if you do not know what that is, Monster Island Studios was a recording studio based in Austin, Texas. And it was essentially ADV's B-Squad. If ADV Films was swamped with dubbing something, they'd farm it out to Austin to be taken care of by the secondary studio. And while the main ADV and studio has produced a bevy of talented actors that have gone on to great heights, Tiffany Grant, Monica Rial, Hilary Haig, Brittany Karbowski, Chris Patton, Brett Weaver, Greg Ayers, Lucy Christian, uh, Vic McNagnog. Vic McDutcha. <laughs> That's a new one. What? You never heard that one before? It came up with that a while back. Vic McTouchia. John Swayze. The list goes on, but if you look at the cast that is frequently used in the Monster Island dubs, not many of them went on to have lasting careers in the anime industry. A few I know are still active today are Samantha Inoue Hart, Charlie Campbell, and Mark X. Leskowski. But other than those few, huh, this cast, man, this dub in terms of acting has two moods, either stiff and robotic or overacting to the point of parody. 
And man, oh man, the acting in this dub. The acting in the dub, in my personal opinion, is what non-anime fans think every anime sounds like if it's dubbed in English. Just the annoying inflections of the voices and bad things going on, people shouting for no reason. Yeah, you're right. It has two moods. It goes from just, you know, shit to shit in 60 seconds. When I say I miss the days when dubs were awful... This is what I'm talking about. And this dub may not be the worst I've ever heard, but it's not good. Although I will say this bad dub is sort of what kept me watching. And I kind of preferred it in English because I could at least laugh at the ridiculous acting. Because Kane, voiced by Steve Metz, sounds like Mike Sinternicholas or Wayne Grayson after drinking 10 two-liter bottles of Coke. Also, I would have to say that Steve Metz really goes out of his way to try and sound like your typical anime guy. Like, hey, I'm a typical anime protagonist. I never thought of it that way, man. It really does sound like somebody who doesn't know what anime is trying to do their best impression of what they think Goku sounds like. Millie's acting on the English side is just Millie shouting her lines for a good chunk of the time. And Canal's voice actress can't act her way out of a wet paper bag. Oh no, she's the worst. I think Canal is the most annoying character because her inflections are so... There's no up and down with her. She just goes, hey Kane, we need to do this thing. But if you don't do uh, this thing, <sighs> then we will be in trouble. I'll turn off life control. I'll turn off their life systems. I'll just do that. Hey, what's the big idea? <laughs> I mean, that's what Canal sounds like in the dub. The sp- Speed Racer's English dub was more listenable than this. Like, Canal just sounds like she's reading her lines right off the script. There's there's no emotion to it. Yeah, as I said, two moods. Either robotic or ridiculous. Pick your poison. <laughs> I, I think that uh, one of the better... I, I would say that Rail wasn't so bad. Well, Bill Wise... I remember from what few dubs I've seen from Monster Island, he was one of the better actors that Monster Island had. I liked him as Knuckles in the Sonic movie. Actually, that's something I should mention, because the most well-known dub that Monster Island has done was that they did the English dub for the Sonic movie. Right, and I forget who uh, plays Sonic in that movie, but he tries so hard to be Jaleel White, it's hilarious. Martin Burke. Yeah. Is his name. Hey there, Tails. Let's try to do something cool. What are you talking? Oh, please. What are you talking about, Sonic? Well, what are we doing? That's a classic dub. Hey, don't knock my girl Samantha Inouye heart. I'm just saying, it sounds like her nose is plugged during that whole recording process. Uh... Of course, the one line everybody from that dub remembers, and I shall imitate it without having to insert a clip here. You might know everything I'm going to do, but that's not going to help you since I know everything you're going to do. Strange, isn't it? Whoever played Robotnik in that dub was fantastic, in my personal opinion. Ed Neal is good, but he's no Long John Baldry, who is the best Robotnik. I know, Mike Pollock, I love you, but you're a close second. <laughs> Let's see here. Who else do we have on this cast? Let's go. Let's keep going down since we liked Bill Wise and... All of that. I think that's pretty much all we have to say about the English dub. I will be putting clips in to sort of showcase the ridiculous acting of it all. I disguised myself as the witness to keep anyone from kidnapping the real girl. To fool the gang, I even had to fool you, Millie. How'd you do it? We arranged it secretly with Rail. 
It seemed a lot safer that way. We got 5,000 credits from Rail, plus a big reward for catching the whole gang. We really cleaned up this time. <laughs> <laughs> But as unpleasant as the English dub is, the music is actually pretty good. Surprisingly, the, the background music throughout the whole show, it really, it, it puts a mood on. And even though this, this show is somewhat of a parody, during the serious parts of the show, which there are some serious parts, especially near the middle and the end, the, the music hits the right mood, especially during the space battles. I really like the space battle music and how they change it up, especially when Spreader of Darkness shows up, you know, that character who we've already, you know, mentioned once. So when that character shows up, there there's special songs for him. I didn't exactly look up the soundtrack and give it a listen, but yeah, the background music is great. Do you want to know who composed oh, it? Oh, I already know. Osamu Tezuka. What a stacked resume he has there, and a great one, too. Not the manga author, Osamu Tezuka. The composer, Osamu Tezuka. Yep. Honestly, his composing career didn't seem to go that far after the 90s but he did all the music for slayers and has also done the music for things like master of mosquitan he did the music for geki ganger 3 from martian successor nadesco so the last notable thing he did was doing the music for the shoujo series bokuraga ita and for those of you who watched it growing up he did the music for metabots or metarots so that's gonna do it for the sound and the soundtrack and now we get to the show proper and at this point, I talk about the characters, and there's really only three we have to dissect. And I think when talking about the characters, we'll discuss just what went wrong with this show. Because it's really hard to pinpoint exactly why Lost Universe is such an underwhelming series. Because there's nothing you can really point to and say, Aha! Now that's the problem! There's some things it does competently, but the competent stuff is undermined by an equal sense of incompetence. But the characters. We start off with our main character, and is that? That's gotta be Kane. <laughs> Kane Blue River is a very two-note character. One of his things, he either goes from like that goofy, "Hey, don't step on my cape," or he is just this typical anime protagonist that fights and fights with no stopping. And there's there he's two notes. He's not a deep, complex character at all. Well, sometimes a character doesn't need to be complex in order to be enjoyable. I mean, look at how much we praised Briking Boss from Kashan. That's true, but I think they come from two different eras, and I think in the post-Evangelion era, there's a lot to be left desired, especially if studios were trying to get on that boom and put out content. Kane's character does grow after a while, but that growing... By the time he grows, it's... The show has become so inconsistent itself that you don't notice that he's grown. You know what I mean? Yeah, it seemed like he did have a character arc, but he himself did not change. No, not at all. And I think that's, you know, that's something you can pinpoint. And especially having a main character that doesn't grow or doesn't change and doesn't progress with the story until way later, that can be an issue. That's something you can go, aha. But if a main character, and there's three of them, as we were talking about, if your main characters can't carry the show, then there is a major problem. If your main characters can't carry the show, you can at least rely on a strong supporting cast to do it for you. 
But the thing is, is that Lost Universe doesn't have too many supporting characters other than two that we'll get to briefly. But you mentioned with Kane, the problem with him is that he's very two-note. He's either this super serious starship captain or this goofy, oh, hey, look at me, I'm in space. Hey, don't step on my cape, yo. Exactly. Because you compare him... He has orange hair, just like Lena Inverse, and you'd think that he'd be space Lena Inverse, because Lena Inverse is sort of a two-note character, but there's more notes to her than that. Like, she's very selfish, she mostly just ventures forth for money and for treasure, she spends her money on frivolities, just eating as much food as she can, but at the end of the day, she's still a noble girl who's willing to do the right thing, and when she needs to be serious, she can be serious. I don't get that sense of nuance from Kane. He's just one thing or the other. Or a third thing as he grows which that plot comes way later. It's like, wait, what? Okay, so how did you get the sword breaker? Oh, now you're starting to be a complex character. Then it just comes too late in the show for you to even care because there's been so many filler episodes at this point that you're just like, oh, wait, wait, what? Who are these villains? Oh, no, no, wait, you're, you're switching villains on us? You're doing this, you're doing that? Oh, another filler episode? Yeah, the thing is, and I was going back looking for clips for the dub to get for this episode, but there are some seeds that are planted for stuff that happens in the second half, but the show, again, is just so inconsistent, you either barely notice it or don't notice it at all. Or Yep, you don't think of it. Like we were saying, there's just so many forgettable plot points. You forget about it. You go, oh... And then you snap your fingers and go, oh, this is why this this character has these motivations. And they bring it up for five minutes and then it goes away because the next episode has, has nothing to do with the story arc they're trying to tell. And Kane, one of the key episodes is when he goes home to his grandmother's house because Kane, as the show reveals, has sort of a special relationship with his grandmother, but they don't dive too far into it. It's a very weak relationship. Like, I get that family loves each other, and I think that that's what they're trying to go with that theming. But they don't talk about how Grandma found the lost ship. They don't get into her motivation for trying to destroy the Spreader of Darkness. They should have had an entire episode devoted to who Kane's grandmother was. But they never did, and that was I think that was a big sin. Because she was also, she could have had, Kane's grandmother could have had a great story arc, like this mysterious person, kind of like, is she a crime lord? Is she a thief? Is she an outlaw? They never really reveal any of that. They try to give you seedlings of that, like, oh, Kane's grandma did some sketchy stuff, but they never really go into detail, which I think they should have. It's what Vince Russo would call a half-pregnant idea. Absolutely. It, it's pretty half-assed. The, the seeds are there, but they never blossom. And that brings us to our next character, Millie. Oh, jeez. The best cook in the universe. And also one of the worst characters in the show, in my personal opinion. Also, her, she's a one-note character. Kane was a two-note character. Millie's a one-note character, especially in the dub, because she's always uh, shouting her lines. And you don't learn a lot about her until way later in the show when you're just already not caring. She does have an episode devoted to herself, and it's one of the stronger points of the show. But... Yeah, other than that, she's just, she's going around trying to be the best thing in the universe. 
That's the one running gag they have with her. She consistently refers to as the best ex in the universe. Yeah, she's she's really it's kind of strange to have her sort of be the comic relief of the show because she doesn't seem like a character that should be the comic relief. The problem, I feel, is that she lacks the chemistry with the other two characters because with Lena and Gowrie, you have this brash, hot-headed, adventurous lady. She's doing it for herself because she wants to spend it all on frivolities and stuff. Versus Gowrie, who's this sort of dim-witted swordsman who ain't the brightest bulb of the bunch, and at times his stupidity can actually be amusing. But you have one hot-blooded character mixing with another hot-blooded character, and the two are just oil and water. Pretty much. And their interactions with each other are just... It's not even kind of on the sense of that they have the chemistry, like, will they get together or won't they? It's more along the lines of watching a married couple fight. And not the fun kind of argument where they're arguing whether or not we should have dinner at the local pizza joint or go out for Chinese. It's just a very, very bitter argument between their relationship with no sense of compromise. No sense of compromise, and also there is just... They do close it up. They do tie it up with a bow, but you kind of look at it at the end of the show and you tie up their relationship. They do tie it up cleanly with a bow, but you think to yourself, you go, wait, 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 when did they start to compromise in the show? Because they never do. This is a relationship that has nothing going for Zero it. merits. <laughs> and I think that's the worst kind of relationship to have, especially in a fictional show. I know that we're supposed to be focusing on the space battles in this show and a lot of the action and fun and, and the story, especially some of the parody that this show has. But the parody falls flat on its face, the jokes fall flat on its face, and the relationships fall flat on their face. And if you want to bring up the other character that we have our three main characters here. Because I think we're done with well, Millie. Well, one last thing I do want to say about Millie is that she's also a gunslinger. She goes around the universe with her pistol that makes this awesome sound effect when it's fired, just this... Oh, yeah. It sounds like the guns from uh, Shin Megami Tensei. Mm -hmm. But when I look at her design and how she holds her gun, all I can think of is that she looks like Minnie Mae from Gunsmith Cats, and that I should be watching Gunsmith Cats instead of this. Right. Yeah, she does. God, she does look really, yeah, she does look really close to Minnie Mae from Gunsmith Cats. Hopefully that was unintentional, but I have a feeling with this show it was intentional. And also I was thinking about it the other day too, going, you know, going back to animation and going back to Kane Blue River. There has to be a reason why they gave him a cape and I'll tell you one thing, because they didn't feel like drawing him and especially for action shots. Yeah, a lot of the action shots when he's in his spaceship are just him sitting down so that they didn't really have to animate much movement. Kane does have his own little lightsaber, which is called a Psyblade, and honestly, that's an awesome weapon. It is. It is an awesome weapon. Yeah, going back to going back to Kane, still a two-note character. Millie. Millie has uh, an interesting character art way at the end of the show, and it comes out of nowhere. I don't know. If, if we want to spoil it for the folks at home, oh my gosh. Well, we'll get to that when we talk about the story. Alright, sounds like a winner. But yeah, Millie, Minnie Mae, draw your own conclusions there. And that brings us to the final character of the trio, and that is the holographic computer waifu, Canal Volfeed. 
Canal is, is definitely an interesting character because of the fact that this is why that this trio in Lost Universe doesn't work is because of Canal. Can you elaborate? I will elaborate because Canal and Kane have a great chemistry together. Even though she is our well-endowed, green-haired, you know, maid outfit, waifu, ship computer, her and Kane have a way better relationship because she gets Kane and there's compromise there. And even though she's actually a lot like Lena Inverse, where she's a very selfish ship computer, she has her own emotions. She has her own motivations for doing things since she is a lost ship. And all lost ships, you learn, have their own motivations for doing something. They, you know, can manipulate the ship's captains in a, in a particular way. And that's, you know, the fate of Kane's grandma was being manipulated by Canal, but Canal is a character that should not be as complex as she is, but her chemistry with Kane works out really well, and Millie is that monkey wrench just thrown right into the cogs that when all three characters are in the same room, it all falls apart, in my personal opinion. I think I agree with you there because you could take Millie out of the equation and it wouldn't really change much because the relationship between Kane and Canal is a brother-sister sort of relationship. Would you agree? I would I would take it as very much a brother and sister relationship. It's because it has its gives and takes. Each character gives and takes their own identities. They bring their own identities to the table. And like like I said, yeah, Kane isn't exactly the best main character, but Canal really elevates him. And when Millie's out of the show for a little bit and it's just Canal and Kane again, the show does have its notes of getting better because we don't hear that bickering. They're not arguing. And even when there were times when they were working together, all three of them, there was just a tension. It just how the characters eventually interacted with each other and eventually interact with each other. Just it's off. It seems off to me. I mean, really, you could just have a show with Kane and Canal. But I think without Millie there, a few things would be lost and it'd be kind of boring. And any space opera, even if it's a space opera parody, let's talk about better shows like Outlaw Star and Cowboy Bebop, where you need that big cast to make everything work. Sometimes having a big cast of three or more characters, this is actually a smaller space opera cast. I would probably say that Outlaw Star has the biggest with Cowboy Bebop going uh, right behind it. It's a foursome. Yeah, yeah. And then with Outlaw Star, I think it's what, about five people. You've got Gene Starwind, you've got Jim, you've got Aisha Clan Clan, you've got Suzuka, you've got Melfina, and you've got the computer there. And each one of them contributes something to the group. But with the trio in Lost Universe, there's just no real chemistry. You have two chemicals that bond together and one that just makes the relationship volatile to the point of being unstable. And it really does make parts of the show unwatchable. In some episodes, you just go, oh, this slog again. What kind of crap are they trying to feed us? What kind of relationship are they supposed to give off? There's also two more characters we got to talk about. Uh, Rail Claymore and his noble assistant, Nina. I don't really want to talk about Rail because Rail is hardly a presence in this show. Yeah, I, I really do like Rail a lot, but my biggest gripe about Rail is that he has a, a face turn at one point, and no one explains why he has a face turn. I hate when anime does that, where a character turns partway through the show and there's no logical explanation given. I remember Gravion doing this, and it pissed me off. Oh, yeah, I mean, the first time that I saw it in Lost Universe, I'm like, oh, okay, there's going to be some tension. But 
Rail's motivations were never present. And then at the end of the day, he goes, whoops, sorry, guys, I did this just to do this. I did this for all of your protection. It's never really explained. And his his assistant, Nina, she's just a one-joke character. Yep. She spills tea on things, and whenever she touches something electronic, it shorts out. As if she was wearing wool or nylon all the time. The first time those gags happen, you know, like spilling a drink on rail or or screwing up something. It's amazing. I think even Nina had some problems like when she was on the Stormbreaker for a hot minute, if I'm not mistaken in the show. Swordbreaker. Yep. Yeah, this thing's so forgettable, we're forgetting the name of the main ship. <laughs> the, sto- the Swordbreaker, because, oh, uh, this well, the Swordbreaker has a cool design, and it, it technically is a character itself because of it, of uh, Kanal. It looks, like, it looks like the NX-01 from Star Trek Enterprise. It does, yeah, it's very similar. I actually prefer it hand-drawn over the CGI, and, and they always try to show off the CGI, and I think that's one of the only ships they have, besides the Spider of Darkness ship. It, that's CGI, like every other ship is is hand-drawn, and I, that's jarring to me. A lot of the ship designs look like they came out of Legend of the Galactic Heroes, because it's that sort of boxy aesthetic. Yeah, and the lost ships are, because technically I believe that they're characters themselves, because like I said, they have their own motivations and everything like that. They come off as like way too silly and futuristic, because the rest of the show's aesthetics and the characters and how they look and everything, it's just, it's pretty much with the characters, it seems like they tried to grab at every 90s space opera that was out before then and grab a character trope. And then put it together and see if it sticks. Cover them in honey, throw them at a wall, see what sticks. The villains themselves, I mean, they come in way, way too late. Like, you've got the group known as Nightmare. I even forget the main bad guy's name. I just just thought he was called Nightmare. Like Nightmare from Soul Calibur. Mm -hmm. Lost ship, give me strength! (laughs) Stargazer is that ship that was... It was cool looking. The, the blonde-haired guy that looks like Gory from the Slayers. Mm-hmm. That That's the villain whose name I keep forgetting. Like, he at least has some screen presence, but again, we don't see him until after the halfway point of the show. Right, yeah, the Nightmare Syndicate. What happens with the Nightmare Syndicate 2 is really, is, is really dumb. And because we don't even care about those characters, they're pretty much just like, oh, yeah, hey, guess what? There are space pirates called the Nightmare Syndicate, and they show up, they have a face, and then they disappear for a bit for filler episodes. And then when they come back, you go, oh, okay. It's funny. They first show up in the Coconut Crab That's episode. Right. Because the first three episodes are slogs themselves, and there's nothing going on. And I think this is sort of where we explore just what went wrong with the show. Because we talked about how the show itself it was a chore to get through. And I think part of the problem is that with a space series made by the Slayers, you'd think that it would be a laugh a minute, but it's just not funny. Like, all the attempts at humor just fall flat. All the jokes are just so one-note. It's the same thing over and over again. 
Millie is trying to be the greatest thing in the universe. She cooks this ridiculous food like chicken-flavored ice cream, and she gets into arguments with Kane, and Kane is worried about getting his cape ruined, and Canal is trying to be the mommy of the group. Yeah, she tries to definitely be the nanny of the group, and, and there's really nothing you can do as a ship's computer, and especially when Canal goes on missions. Here's a trope that people forget about, which the jokes fall flat on their face, is every time Canal is like, oh, no, I'm out of range. I guess I'll see you guys later. And she disappears when two other main characters are in trouble. Need her. And then there's the episode where she has a transmission glitch and whenever she goes out of range, she turns into a deviant art drawing. <laughs> Which, I, I mean, I... I get a chuckle out of that just because me too i just i just like oh it's canal obese it's like hey wait a second magma diver if, are they trying to make a magma diver joke because inflation fetishes we're not going, oh! we're, not going <laughs> we're not going to go there but you know what i'm sorry if someone has an inflation <laughs> fetish that's okay we're not here to kink shame but Every time I see that in anime, I think about Magma Diver from Evangelion, and I think about that forgettable episode of Lost Universe where, yeah, she turns into a DeviantArt drawing. No, I would say an E621 drawing. Hey, hey, hey! But no, she, yeah, she, that just inflation fetish part, and then just, oh, it's different versions of Canal, okay. The dub, I didn't watch the sub of this episode, so I'm assuming that Megumi Hayashibara just lowered her voice for this. In the dub, they actually pitch her voice down so that when she gets out of range, she sounds like this. And it's very jarring because you can tell that they used a pitch shifter. Yeah. There, there isn't the actor that's actually trying it. Sorry, Jessica Schwartz, but they already know that she, you can already tell that she's not trying and she probably didn't even mm. try. <laughs> they just did it in post-production. What's the problem, Canal? I have a projection glitch. What? My plasma figure creation unit's malfunctioning. If I step away. This <laughs> stupid error makes me look like this. <laughs> I knew something would happen. Oh. Hey, listen! The school's already given us a down payment! Now we'll have to give it all back! We need money. We're not returning it. We're going ahead with the job. I'm sure you'll make a breathtaking female. Huh? But yeah, there's a ton of just... If we're going to be starting to talk about the show, there's a ton of episodes that just don't make sense because this show is chock full of filler. Yeah, like the episode where they go to the planet that's just a giant chess game. I like the ending to that episode, but it's just, it feels like it was an episode for Outlaw Star that got tossed to Lost Universe as a rotten leftover. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the chess episode does have to do with Kane's grandma, but it's so subtle that it falls flat and you're you're like, what, what? Oh, this this doesn't make any sense, but it's supposed to make sense. The mission of the week format can work. It's not a bad thing. Just because a show's format is our heroes dealing with a different villain or a different emergency every week doesn't make it bad. It's what you do with that formula. And Lost Universe sadly doesn't do anything interesting with the format it's given. No, and I concur with you that, yeah, mission of the week or, you know, story of the week that's fine. I think it's okay for a TV show like this, especially if they're trying to tell jokes and trying to be lighthearted. But when, like I said, when it goes from lighthearted to serious in less than 60 seconds, sometimes the tone is very jarring. 
And another thing is that it doesn't really have that sense of parody to it. Like Slayers, it's very much a parody of the tropes you see in fantasy novels or Dungeons and Dragons. But with Lost Universe, it doesn't really seem to know what parody is in sci-fi. Right, and that's one of the show's biggest uh, misfires as well, is the fact that it doesn't know what it wants to parody. It wants to try to parody Star Wars. It wants to try to parody Star Trek. It wants to try to even parody its contemporaries. But I don't feel like it can. It doesn't have the ammo. It doesn't have that oomph to be a really effective parody. Most of the time, it just feels like everything is played completely straight. Yeah, and that's a, that's a big problem with the show, too, is like I said, that tone shift goes completely and utterly off the wall. Because it's just one minute we have our characters being serious and some plot points are going on. And then, for instance, like when Rail is trying to actually give us a motivation on why he made the turn, Nina goes and spills coffee on him as a joke. Like, did audiences find that funny in 1998? I mean, clumsy characters work. Maybe, I'm sure the Japanese did. But what works in Japan may not work here in America. Right, more sight gags are bigger in anime over in Japan. The sight gags are funnier. The puns are funnier. Over here, there's not too many sight gags or puns unless you're trying to unlock a show or here's like some deep lore of this TV show because you see something in the background here that they bring up later. Like in Community, there's Beetlejuice references, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's Beetlejuice references. But you have to be looking for those and when you watch lost universe there's sight gags but they don't really give you a sense of an accomplishment when you figure out what they're about and why they fit. there's no context no they're out of context and when they eventually come into context you've already forgotten about them i mean like i said i've seen this show three times and every time i i get it i get more of what the story's trying to be but it's still such a slog to go through because of all the filler episodes and it doesn't really get any direction until that second half where Kane kind of has an about face. And I do say that the last few episodes are quite strong, but it's not enough to save this show from basically just being average. The last few episodes are actually pretty good. And yeah. that's... It just feels like there's actual tension. I feel this would have worked better if it was 13 episodes instead of 26. Right, because when we think about filler episodes, the the one episode where, where Kane plays basketball with kids, I mean... Oh, yeah, that was a riot. And then, you know, just like, hey, what's up, young people? I'm a cool space hero. And then he, like goes out of his way to help kids out like okay I, I get like that's kind of a fun episode where we get to see a side of Kane that might go somewhere like whenever I see an episode where an anime protagonist who has a childlike nature they dedicate an episode of him being around kids or helping you know some downtrodden kids like that can work this episode kind of didn't work, and I felt like it was forced. There's also another episode that I'm thinking of while I have this train of thought going. For me, this is an infamous episode, the bathroom episode, where they dedicate a whole episode. Oh, yeah, I wanted to forget that. Yeah, because the joke is is that the sword breaker has only one bathroom. Much like how in Star Trek, the Enterprise has only one bathroom. With an episode like this, you'd think that the whole concept of the episode would just be built around the fact that the show has only one bathroom. But this isn't a starship that has thousands of people on it. It's a starship that has only three members and 
the bathroom, I'm guessing like the bathroom is really tiny or something, but the first half is just them finding this mysterious crystal, and in the second half, uh-oh, the bathroom is not where it should be. Yeah, the it's... whole joke of the episode, I guess, is that Kane really has to drain his lizard so bad that he's, you know, <laughs> going out of his way to try to figure out where the bathroom moved to, but, you know, you would think, like, in any competent science fiction show, you think Canal would try to help, yeah, and she doesn't. But she's nope, not. It, because she, it, it's really funny because she revels in their pain in a way if you notice that about about canal in that episode i didn't catch that because i thought canal was being completely serious like oh no kane the bathroom's gone i'm gonna have to try my best to try and find it oh it's over here now no it's gone over there but there there are some subtle touches in that sort of filler episode where we learn later on that canal can be manipulative and she is one of the lost ships that happens to be quote unquote good, but they said in the show that, well, lost ships can't be good or evil. They're just there. They've been there since the beginning of yeah. time. So there are moments in the show that Canal, and especially in a story aspect, does get a little malicious and selfish. And you wouldn't think that a computer could do that, but they dedicate whole episodes to stuff like that. And especially later in the show, which I think the filler goes a bit too far in my personal opinion. Yeah, if The Rolling Girls was a 20-episode show trapped in a 12-episode show, this feels like a 13-episode show trapped in a 26-episode show. There had to have been some, honestly, there had to have been some kind of contractual agreement with the creator of the manga, like, oh, you know, we have to put out 26 episodes or what, a season? So about a season of a show, I would say. But yeah, it would definitely would work out as a 13-episode show. But then again, Slayers worked as well a 25 26 episode show for all of their seasons well the thing is is that slayers has enough material to go with lost universe just feels like it stretched itself way too thin yeah definitely i've never read the manga but there has to be enough volumes i mean if it ran what the early 90s i think it started the light yes. novels and the and the manga kept going while the show was going. So there's enough there to draw from, but I'm guessing if a lot of these episodes are filler and we don't know why Rail makes that change, why he sells out Kane, you don't know because they don't care to tell you. And they could have because they could have went right from the manga and picked it up or something if it was there, which I have a feeling... I don't think it was either. I honestly don't know just whether or not it's a reflection of the source material, if the source material was better, but either way, the show is just so meh. And here is the real kicker about Lost Universe to me. When I first saw the artwork for Lost Universe, I estimated that it came out sometime in the mid-90s, around 95 or 96. But as I mentioned at the very beginning of the episode... This thing aired in April of 1998 and finished in September of the same year. Do you want to know what else was airing at the same time? Oh, we've, we've brought up one of the shows already. Trigun, Outlaw Star, and Cowboy Bebop. All three shows which surpassed this by a light year. Not only is Lost Universe dated by today's standards, 
It was dated the moment it came out. It, it, it does feel like it's it's dead on arrival, especially when we take a look at like what Trigun did for Madhouse. Trigun was another one of those space opera shows, in a way. Space Western, space Western is what we called it. Right. But you were also saying, because we were having a off-camera discussion about how all these shows didn't exactly do the best in Japan, and Lost Universe actually did better, believe it or not, right? I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case, because according to Anime News Network, and this isn't cited, so I, I take it with a grain of salt, but a major anime magazine in a reader's poll said that this was the second most popular show of 98 in Japan. And when you think about Outlaw Star, Trigun, and Cowboy Bebop, which all three of those shows, in my personal opinion, are really great, I don't know why that might have been popular. I think because of the fact that Trigun, Trigun, Outlaw Star, and Cowboy Bebop were all aimed for Western audiences. And I think the West definitely adopted those shows a lot more than Lost Universe. And I think Lost Universe, with the with the moniker that we have from the creator of the Slayers, my VHS tape says. And yeah, when you take a look at the tapes with the artwork themselves, they really did try to market it for Western audiences as well. And Lost Universe could have worked for Western audiences, but I don't think it, it eventually did, like those other shows that came out that same year. Very tough competition right there. Well, again, Lost Universe doesn't have the style with Cowboy Bebop, you've got that aesthetic of film noir and heroic bloodshed. Trigun, it's very much science fiction meets spaghetti westerns. Outlaw Star is more of a traditional sci-fi show with Japanese samurai films mixed in with it. And you would think something like Lost Universe, and you're saying, yes, this show is dead on arrival. The show's dead on arrival because if they didn't try to copy the Slayers, which the Slayers, what, came out some years before? Yes. Um... What they were trying to do was copy the early 90s. And you can't just put a CGI sheen on a couple of those ships to make it better. Like you were saying, it's definitely dead on arrival. It was a stillborn. It was a stillborn show, in my personal opinion. But it must have been popular because, like you were saying, this was the second most popular show. What was the first popular, most popular show? If I had to hazard a guess, I would probably say Initial D. That would definitely make sense. Initial D would would be something that was really popular. I mean, Initial D even uh, snuck over here with uh, in the form of arcade machines mainly, and that or Card Captor Sakura. Card Captor Sakura is really great too. I'm a fan. I don't know about that, but there's a reason why Cowboy Bebop, Trigun, and Outlaw Star are remembered so fondly in America while Lost Universe remains the red-headed stepchild of space operas that came out in 1998, and it wasn't because it didn't air on Adult Swim. Nope. It got a, it got a release in Mexico. I mean, that's how I, that's how I saw it in, what, 2000, 2001, but the home video release, and during that time with the, all of the crap ADV was throwing out there, definitely. I think that people probably just watched the first volume uh, on VHS or DVD and just kind of was like, I don't need to buy the rest. <laughs> I think the ultimate lesson that we've taken away from Lost Universe is that it's ultimately better for an anime to be bad than to be average. Absolutely. And there's a ton of average anime out there. And there, there's a lot to go off if you have a bad anime. Um, and there's a lot to go off if you have a good anime because you can enjoy the characters. You can really just like go 
deep about get into deep detail about how you love these characters how you hate these characters but when you have a show like lost universe that tries to be slayers in space but can't pull it off then we have a big problem and there's some great aspects to it you know uh and the ending is is fantastic and that's when the story starts to pick up because there's that middle section when millie breaks off from the group and we don't really we try to care but just how her attitude in the show has been up to the middle point of the show, you kind of just don't care what happens to her. How did you feel about that? Would you agree? I would probably agree. Again, I think I would have reacted more toward Millie's departure if she was an appealing character. But with an average anime, let me put it this way. With a bad anime, you can take your frustrations out on it. Or you can just laugh at how pathetically awful it is. With a good anime, you can praise it to various levels. It's either good, great, excellent, or a straight-up masterpiece. But with an average anime, it's just there. Like, years later, we're still talking about bad things like M.D. Geist and Garzy's Wing and Twinkle Nora Rock Me. And Iken and Ninja Resurrection. But with Lost Universe, it just sits in that uncomfortable middle spot. Not good, not bad, just plain meh. Absolutely, I, I concur. And it's really sad that the ending doesn't get the praise that I think it deserves. But they, they try to shovel in so much plot and so much story. And then... Can we talk about the ending? Because this is just one of the most stupid moments, I think, of the show. Sure, I'll set off the spoiler alarm, even if we've already spoiled it. <laughs> Millie's brother is the main villain, and they try to shoehorn a relationship there... But it just falls flat on its face like a lot of parts of the show. They try to give Millie uh, some motivations, but they, they can't give Millie motivation because she's like, well, it's, it's, it's it only comes in the final episode. And by that point, it's too little too late. Well, they, they bring it up a little bit before, but they're just like, again, you barely notice yep. it. <laughs> In that last episode, too, it, you know, the last couple of episodes where Canal, you know, you get to see her true colors, Kane's fighting for his life. There's a lot of tension and a lot of great things going on. Like that last episode, yeah, I was on the edge of my seat because they were they were just trying to tie it all up with the bow, trying to give you drama, action, suspense. There was all these recipes that everything was supposed to be set for that show in a way. The, everything that should have been in the rest of the show ends up being in that last story arc of those just few episodes with the spreader of darkness and everything. But yeah, you're completely right. How they, oh my God, how they treat Millie. And then eventually they're just like, oh yeah, by the way, your sibling is the bad guy. And it's like, wait, what? Dun, dun, dun. And it doesn't make any sense and it doesn't work because it doesn't add anything to Millie's character. What should have been added to the character was, I mean, when we get to that last story arc and Canal shows Kane how Kane's grandma died, that was really cool because we got to see a different version of Canal. And then when Canal assumes her ultimate form and isn't a, a, a well-endowed teenager anymore, and she's like that beautiful celestial goddess that she's supposed to be, 
Yeah. Then that's a little that's too little too late myself, you know? It's like, "Oh, wait, the Swordbreaker is actually more powerful than it comes on being." Like, "Okay. Great." But like I said, too little too late. What do you think? I would agree. I I feel like the last rush the show gets in the final five or six episodes, it really just feels like prior to that, the show was just dawdling about aimlessly before realizing, oh crap, we have a story to tell. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, I'm pretty sure there there had to have been a, a contract set in place where they had to put out that many episodes. It really does feel that way. And that's just like the overall feeling of the show. It's it's most of it's forgettable. The first couple of episodes, you get to know your characters all right, and then you kind of keep going with the show because even though you've done the three-episode rule, you kind of keep going with it. They try, when they introduce Rail and Nina, okay, that's great. That's where, you know, the gang as the troubleshooters, which I do like the troubleshooters as a name of a contractor that works for that space police. You know, I, I like that name. There are some cool concepts in the storytelling, but they never come to term. Troubleshooter reminds me of Trouble Agents from the Dirty Pair. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's pretty close. It makes it sound more like Kane is a computer technician than a space mercenary. You know, it'd be more interesting if he was a, you know, if he was a, a part of the geek squad going through <laughs> outer space trying to uh, solve everyone's problems. Instead of mm -hmm. instead of the typical anime action protagonist who has a cape and the reason why he has that cape is because every time he makes a big jump, they probably didn't want to animate his legs and you see that <laughs> cape like sprawling out there. I mean, it just makes sense. There's a, there's a lot of things that when you take a look at this show, you go, ah, but I don't know. I think story-wise, when it starts to pick up at the end, when Rail does his big face turn and says, you know what, Kane killed so-and-so, and we don't even care who, like, Kane killed or how Kane got in trouble. You're just like, nope, he's in trouble now. He's the bad guy. And then everyone's after him. And I, I kind of get, like, Kane being on the run, Kane and Canal with the Swordbreaker being on the run is, is a fun plot point, but they didn't make it fun enough. It's not a fun story arc. It's a depressing story arc, actually, because of the fact that Kane is always exerting himself. And as he grows as his character, he's still the same character that's trying to grow, but they don't know how to make him mature. And that's the biggest problem, I think, with Kane is that when we kind of were talking about his character, they don't give him an interesting enough story arc to make him work. But then uh. at the end of the day... He just, he pulls through. And that ending, it's its tied up really sweet with a bow. Oh, mother, 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 won't you come show me the way. But I think that does it for Lost Universe. This show was, it wasn't painful, but it just wasn't fun to get through. I would say that I had an easier time getting through Kakegurui than I did with this. Because Kakegurui, again, is not a good show, but I was at least entertained when watching Kakegurui. And there is not that much entertaining with Lost Universe. And to add insult to injury, it wasn't just dated when it came out, but it was already succeeded as a sci-fi comedy by two major shows that came before it. The first being Tenchi Muyo, which was which was a sci-fi romance comedy, and the other one being the definitive 90s sci-fi comedy anime, Irresponsible Captain Tyler. 
That right there is a show that has a sense of parody. As a huge fan of Irresponsible Captain Tyler, Captain Tyler has a direction of knowing what it makes fun of. Because Captain Tyler makes fun of Legend of the Galactic Heroes and it makes fun of Space Battleship Yamato. They have a focus. They're not trying to go everywhere with it like Lost Universe did. With Irresponsible Captain Tyler, and trust me, I'm a huge fan of it. One of my favorite shows of all time. There's a direction of the parody. If you know the source material, you know what they're getting at. You get the jokes. You have fun with the jokes. Even if you don't, they telegraph those jokes to you. They feed them to you in such a clever way. Same in a way with Tenshi Muyo. Tenshi Muyo is your typical harem anime, but it sets the bar for sci-fi harem anime and it goes all over the place. You know, those first six episodes of the OVA of Tenshi Muyo was perfect. And yeah, the OVA does fall off the rails, but then you have Tenshi Universe, which even in its filler episodes, is still completely watchable. The Lost Universe, it was forgettable then and it's forgettable now. Absolutely. But you know what? If you're curious, you can watch this thing in its entirety on YouTube, both sub and dub. So, the best part is that you don't even need to pay money for it. Right Stuff has it all on their YouTube channel. Absolutely. I think, you know, to say a final word about Lost Universe, it's a curiosity. If you really wanted to know what happened in in anime, if you wanted a new show, if you're going to be watching anime from each decade and you want something just for three episodes in the 1990s, I highly suggest watching the bad dub because the dub is at least entertaining. The English dub is at least entertaining, and it is a curiosity of the time. It really is. I think if it came out a year or two earlier, it probably would have ended up better. But then again, a year or two earlier, you were uh, fighting for the top spot with Evangelion and uh, many other shows that came out in 95 and 96 that end up being better. And I'm drawing a blank on some of those shows, but Martian successor Nadesco would be... Nadesco, Nadesco. I always always say it wrong, Nadesco. But yeah, Nadesco would be something that that they would probably lose out to as well. (laughs) So that's Lost Universe. Not a good show. Not even a so-bad-it's-good kind of show. It's just average. Painfully average average i guess check it out if you're curious but honestly there are much better uses of your time and there are many other sci-fi comedy anime that you could be watching instead of this but you know what sometimes when you watch an anime that's as difficult to get through as this one you're gonna need some liquor to help you wash out the taste oh my gosh i'm guessing you had a few drinks while watching this some once in a while eh Maybe, but that's a hint for what's going to be happening next time on the Otaku Nate Show as we head down to the local pub to have a few drinks and explore the world of cocktails and alcohol with Bartender. So before we go, Race, do you have anything to plug? Absolutely, I always have something to plug. You know me, I'm the big self-promotion kind of guy. Check me out on Twitch if you want to hear me uh, just shoot on anime, on manga, on video games. I'm always doing something interesting. It's twitch.tv slash racerx, and not the band racerx. You know, Speed Racer's uh, evil brother let's just say. And uh, I have a band called Audrey Byrne. You can also check Audrey Byrne out on audreyburn.bandcamp.com. And lastly, 
I don't always make a lot of jokes on there, but once in a while I make jokes. I'm on Twitter, at Race Ribble on Twitter. Look me up and follow me. I like to retweet a lot of anime stuff and music stuff. So if you have any inkling of interest to uh, see what I'm up to, you're always welcome to. So until then, this is Otaku Nate. And Race Ribble. And we're signing off and saying, it's time for some real stomach pumping. Ah!